Welcome to the Writing Westward podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. This is our 10th episode, and we'll be speaking with journalist John Branch about his latest book, The Last Cowboys, A Pioneer Family in the New West. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Each episode features a conversation with an author or scholar of new works that explore the North American West. We hope that our discussions will spark your curiosity to learn more and think differently about the North American West as a region and its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. You can follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can listen on our website, writingwestward.org, or subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're listed on most major distributors. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research and events, or anything else, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. You can get more regular updates about the Red Center on Facebook and Twitter as well. Thanks for listening. Today we're speaking with New York Times sports reporter John Branch about his latest book, The Last Cowboys, A Pioneer Family in the New West, published by W.W. W. Norton last year and which just came out in paperback this month. Branch's previous work has received considerable acclaim. In 2011 and 2012, he was a finalist for Pulitzer Prizes in feature writing, and in 2013, his multimedia project Snowfall, The Avalanche at Tunnel Creek, about a deadly avalanche in Washington State, did win the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. In 2015, his biography, Boy on Ice, The Life and Death of Derek Bogart, won the 2015 ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing. Today, we talk about his recent book, which has pulled him into our world of the American West. The Last Cowboys tells two parallel and multi-generational narratives, the historic and current struggles of the Wright family to maintain and evolve their ranching operations in southern Utah, and specifically on the borders of Zion National Park at Smith Mesa, as well as the ongoing exploits of multiple generations of Wright boys who dominate the national saddle bronc riding scene. In recent years, Wright family members, fathers, sons, brothers, uncles, and cousins, have all vied with each other for championship belts. Intersecting these stories, Branch's Last Cowboys ponders the future of the New West, wrestles with how families like the Wrights try to balance honoring tradition with meeting the new challenges of the region. The Wright family story, as related by Branch, provides a fascinating view of some of these challenges and crises that many communities across the American West face in the ever-changing region. Uh, welcome to the podcast, John Branch. Um, we appreciate you taking some time to talk with us. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Um, I wanted to uh, do, a, I already introduced listeners a little bit to the book and who you are. Um, so I kind of wanted to start by asking you uh, kind of what, what drew you to this topic. Uh, you're a sports writer, a, a journalist, so can you kind of give us the genesis of this project? Yeah, sure. The um, I grew up in a in a pretty small town in Golden, Colorado, outside of Denver. Yeah. Uh, went to a few rodeos as a kid, and as I became a sports writer, the places that I worked would occasionally have a rodeo that came through town, and I loved that time of year because I thought rodeo stories were so much fun to do. The characters were fresh and different and fascinating. Um, the whole world is just different than what we're used to. On, on the regular sports beat. And probably five or six years ago, I had an editor at the Fresno Bee. The man who hired me at the Fresno Bee was a guy from Kingman, Arizona, 
um, mm. a man named Charlie Waters. And he was an editor all around the West over many, many years, everywhere from the L.A. Times to Kingman, Arizona, to Reno, to Las Vegas, to Fresno. And he followed rodeo a little bit. And after he retired and after I had moved on to the New York Times, we were having breakfast one day and he told me about the Wright family. He said, have you ever heard about the Wrights? They are basically the Mannings. The brothers are basically the Mannings (laughs) of of rodeo. They're dominating the saddle bronc category of rodeo. And I said, no. And he said, I think they're a fascinating story. And so he's the one that put me onto them. And I basically called the rights and said, I want to come meet you. And I went out and met them in Las Vegas at the National Finals Rodeo one year and just kept hanging around them for about three or four more years. Um, And I just loved kind of immersing myself into that world. Did you have any rodeo street cred? I had no rodeo street cred. Um, I'm not a horseman. Um, They have enjoyed watching me try to ride horses (laughs) (laughs) over the times that I've been with them. so, no, I didn't have a lot of street cred. In fact, you know, we go to rodeos and some rodeos, for example, will require the people behind the shoots to be wearing button up shirts and cowboy hats because they want all their photographs and all their videos to look authentic. Like yeah. everybody there is a real deal. And I was wearing my Converse All Stars and I have no cowboy hat. So I had to really be careful that I was not in the background of pictures. <laughs> That's great. I think it's interesting, you know, you know, for sports fans or not sports fans. The rodeo world is, um, you know, unless you're from kind of rural America, and even then, like rural Western America, I think it's a foreign land to a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, I think people just don't get it. Um, it. I guess it's like a lot of kind of niche sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You don't realize what's happening in the world of, you know, yo-yos or something <laughs> until you kind of dive in and say, wow, there are thousands of people who love yo-yos. I'm had- really into yo-yos, yeah, exactly. or Rubik's Cubes. or Exactly, yeah. uh, both of which I've written stories about it. Funny <laughs> That's um, <laughs> And rodeo is kind of like that. Until you stumble across it, I, I think, you know, I, I'm of a certain age where I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and I think rodeo and kind of the Western culture, especially growing up in Colorado, was still sort of part of the pop culture. And I think that's faded a little bit. You know, I grew up you know, with a, a Lone Ranger um, toy set, yeah. uh, you know, lunchboxes, things like that. Westerns were still a big deal on TV. Um, it was still sort of the, the, the era of the cowboys and Indians, and that's what kids did when they played in the yard. And... You know, so I think some of that is is a little bit of nostalgia on my part, but I don't think kids today think of it that way. And so unless you're in a small town that has a rodeo that comes through or you happen to be in Las Vegas in early December when the national finals rodeo comes through and tens of thousands of cowboys and cowgirls and rodeo folks um, invade Las Vegas, which is a wonderful spectacle in, its, in itself, <laughs> uh, you probably don't realize how big a deal it is. But there are I mean, that the. the Pro Rodeo Cowboys Association, based in Colorado, is the one that sanctions a good majority of the rodeos in this country. And there are, I think, at last count, between 700 and 800 every year. And I think that kind of stuff floors people. Um, You tell people in New York that there are 800 rodeos around the West every summer. And they're like, really? Who's going to these things? Well, and and even more, you know, more kind of amateur, small um, rodeos, you know, beyond that. Absolutely. So, so probably thousands. But uh, and and the big circuit, I think people would be shocked to know that you know some of these top rodeoers are winning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Although you know you detail throughout the book that they're also having to plow a lot of time and money into it. You know you got to spend money to make money. But 
Um, yeah. But it's a it's a big deal. I think it's yeah. um it's always fascinating to find out that in your backyard, uh, you know, there's there's this huge thing going on that that you were fully unaware of. Yeah, and that happens. I was in San Antonio maybe about a year ago during the San Antonio rodeo, which is a huge rodeo on the circuit. Um, but it happens to fall during South by Southwest, which is now the kind of the music and, and kind of culture yeah. um, exposition, tech exposition. And folks there had no idea that 10 miles away it was one of the biggest rodeos of the year. So those worlds don't always collide. Uh, the concentric concentric circles don't always overlap. Although there is kind of a new movement, you know, and alternative and indie music you know people are doing some alt country music and you see indie rockers wearing you know cowboy boots maybe ironically sometimes but i don't think they they're not tapped into kind of the legitimate uh cowboy boot wearing crowd at all (laughs) well we have and we have seen it um sort of raise up again in pop culture especially in movies and television you know things like the kept costner show on netflix or hbo um there are several sort of cowboy themed um movies and and TV shows out there. So I, it's, I don't know if it's having a moment, um, but it's nice to see that at least that genre is, is not disappearing. And I think people are trying to give it a little bit more realism than probably we had in the past, which is good. Yeah. It's much more kind of the gritty Western noir. Um, yes. That that's kind of having a moment, which is very different than kind of the pop culture, Lone Ranger or Davy Crockett TV series, or, you know, or even dime novels and things that some other people grew up with. Right. So had you written previous? And we'll, sorry, we'll get to the rights eventually. But um, uh, had you written previously about anything that was kind of, I mean, because this is a, a podcast about about the West, the American West, mm-hmm. um, and you don't pitch this book as a, a Western book, but it very much is. Had you mm-hmm. written previously about topics that were kind of sp- specific to the West, or that you approached from that angle? Um, not specifically, because as you said, I'm a sports writer by trade, although. Um, People think who who know me know that I or think that I'm not a very good excuse for a sports writer because I don't go to games very often. Um, so I tend to write a lot of sort of offbeat features. You know, I've written a lot of things about people who have died in avalanches, for example, or hockey players, enforcers um, who have overdosed on on pain med- medications. Um, a lot of kind of dark side of sports and usually kind of the hidden corners of sports. Now, that has taken me around the West quite a bit, and I'm a, a student a little bit of the West and having grown up in the West. But because it's sports, I've never really dived into deep reporting of the West. It's just sort of been a, a sort of a side hobby and, and interest of, of mine. Um, I've more recently started to talk and work with other desks at The New York Times, writing stories about environment um, and climate change, that sort of thing. So um, I'm expanding my world, and I'll probably do more of that in the future. But, you know, when I sat down to do this, no, it was just kind of another story at the time that I sat down to write it. Well, I was pleased to see how much it resonates with a lot of kind of broader issues that we're talking about, you know, in kind of the contemporary modern West. Let's get to the Wright family a little bit. Um, A ranching family, they've been ranching on Smith Mesa outside of Zion National Park for over 150 years. And in your book, you kind of bounce back and forth between the experiences of Bill Wright, the family patriarch, and him wrestling with the challenges of ranching and the, the future of ranching in that area, and then these stories of his sons and his grandsons' national rodeo championship exploits. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what you talk about is the current generation looking forward to the future and trying to figure out how they're going to chart a course into the future that is viable as a ranching family. Um, 
but that preserves kind of their history and traditions. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what are the, the traditions that they're wanting to preserve as a ranching family and, and why is that so hard and so challenging for them? Yeah, I mean, the rights are interesting and, and, and they're, you know, probably not unlike countless of other families around the West who have been ranching for a long time, who have been, for the most part, on the same land, doing much of the same thing for decades, generations, and really don't have aspirations to do much more than to continue doing that. They kind of just want to be left alone and let them do this work, which they see as as good, solid, noble work and pursuits. Um, and that has been handed down through the generations of the Wrights. And Bill and Evelyn Wright have 13 kids. Um, they're now ages probably 45 down to about 20 or so. And seven of them are boys, and they're all rodeo cowboys. But they all, strangely enough, out of 13 kids, they have all chosen to kind of stick with the family plan. They all live fairly close um, to Milford, Utah, where Bill and Evelyn live. Um, none of them are really outliers. You know, you would think out of 13 kids, one of them would say, I want to, you know, like uh, the kid in Rudolph, I want to be a dentist, the elf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody has said, I want to go to New York and be a dentist or something. They're all sort of in and around there. And all the boys especially are very invested in Bill's growing but relatively modest ranching operation. They want to continue their gener their next generation and for their kids to keep doing this kind of work. Um, if they can make a living on horseback and working with their hands um, and being out on the land, that's exactly what they want to do. And it's it's fascinating to me because it's just different than I think what most people see. Um, you know, most people, you know, the stories of families is you always want to build something better for the next generation and the next generation kind of builds on the next thing. That's exactly what the rights are doing, but they're trying to build on basically what they've already been doing. Um, yeah. There's not a big jumping off point um, in terms of all that. And the rights have a lot of advantages and disadvantages. You know, we can talk about the land and so on around Zion, but one of the advantages is that these right boys are now world champion cowboys. So they are actually coming into relatively decent sums of money. Um, you know, maybe not compared to, say, professional golfers, but they're making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year um, doing some pretty tough rodeo work. And they can now invest that back into the ranching operation. So you know, I think some people would see it's a little bit of an, of an anachronism, the idea that you're going to use rodeo in the 21st century to help finance a ranching operation in the 21st <laughs> century, um, you know, so that they can live more like it's the 20th or 19th century. Yeah. Um, that all fascinated me. I mean, throughout the book, though, I was I repeatedly asked myself, because uh, at one point, so they're, and they have a deep attachment to Smith Mesa, where the family's been for so long. And, right. And, I mean, we can get to in a few minutes about some of the specific challenges of holding on to Smith Mesa and ranching there. But you wrote that um, maybe the best way to build a herd and hang on to Smith Mesa was to win a lot of rodeos. Like, mm -hmm. like you say, financing what might otherwise not be a sustainable operation through yeah. rodeo winnings. But you detail the broken bone after broken bone and the, <laughs> just I, the what they what they're putting their bodies through. And I guess now uh, now the grandson's generation um, putting their bodies through to finance this ranching operation. I mean, I also wondered is. If, if ranching Smith Mesa on its own is not sustainable, 
Um, is funding yeah. it through Broken Bones sustainable? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. You know, it, it, all these guys are Saddle Bronc riders, and they will tell you that among the rough stock events, Saddle Bronc is the most sane. Um, more sane than bull riding. More sane than bull riding, and even more sane than bareback riding, mm-hmm. which is kind of the cousin um, of, of Saddle Bronc. Um, but their, their definition of sanity is still a little bit looser than mine because I've been up close and watched them jump on these things or get on these things and then get thrown off these things and get hurt from these things and get carted away. Um, they but are that's the world hurt. they grew up in. That's right? the world they grew up in. And they are the kind of kids and kind of family that if you're a five-year-old kid and you fall off a horse, nobody's coming crying for you, you know, rub dirt in it and uh, move <laughs> on. And they grew up that way. And that that really helps them in the rodeo world. And rodeo is fascinating and somewhat unique in sports because they're not getting any money if they don't last eight seconds. And they're certainly getting no money if they don't show up and ride a horse. And so you you kind of suck it up and work through your injuries. And if you're too hurt um, to get on the horse, then you're going to go broke. And so they do that. And they know that it's a young man's game. Um, Cody, the oldest brother, who's kind of one of the main characters in the book, he does it till he's 40, but some of these guys know that the next ride could be a back injury or something that ends it all right then when they're 20-something. Um, and then they've got to figure out what they're going to do. Do you see a difference in how they view it than, say, um, you know, professional NFL players? I mean, I've had some friends who went uh, went pro in the NFL for a mm-hmm. few years, um, tried not to get injured, and then used their you know earnings to go off and have a career doing something else because they knew it just wasn't something. You know, it's a young man's game, right. and, uh, and you, your body takes a toll. Do, they, do, do these rodeoers view it different than maybe the NFL world that the rest of us are more familiar with? I think it is similar to that where you know it's probably going to be short-term, and if it somehow makes it long-term, then you just pretty much got lucky. Um, you know, Between being successful and good at it and, and staying healthy, um, that takes some luck and some serendipity, I guess, yeah. in football or in rodeo or anything that's um, a, a sort of a dangerous pursuit like that. Um, I think what's different with rodeo is that there really are no guarantees. There's very little fame. There's very little fortune to it. It's, I think, more of a labor of love. And it's also a little bit different because, you know, all these guys are involved in rodeo and they know that if I get hurt tomorrow, this all ends. I still want to do something associated with this lifestyle. Yeah. Um, you know, the the young right boys who are in their early 20s and now winning championships all over the place, they would love to breed bucking horses when they get older. That You know, they're thinking, what's my next step when this all ends? But it's going to be something related. And, you know, as the book points out, a lot of it is. Is it going to be helping my grandpa or my father with the ranch? Can we help build this ranch big enough that we can, the next generation and the following generation can then take it over? Is there a, is there going to be a big enough pie for all of us to split? And so they're all kind of working toward that goal. Well, let's get back to the the, the ranch then. Tell us about Smith Mesa and what it is that's uh, encroaching in on them and and threatening their their tradition of ranching there. Yeah, so Smith Mesa, for anybody who's out there who's familiar with Zion National Park and the geography right around there, and if you go down I-15 um, to Tokerville or to Hurricane, um, and you and you head towards Springdale to go in that main gate, I guess the western gate of, of Zion, on the way there, before you get to Springdale, you pass through the little town of Virgin, which was founded as Virgin City, and that's where all the rights back in the 1860s or so um first migrated to as part of the uh, cotton mission and if you turn left at 
Virgin. Instead of going where all the tourists are going towards Springdale, you turn off the highway and kind of go up to the left. Um, you'll work your way eventually up to Smith Mesa. And it's just on the very outer boundary of the western side of Zion National Park. Um, and then the it, dip, it there, dips into the park a little bit. It dips into the park east. a little bit. Yeah. yeah, you kind of, the little road that hugs the um, the wall, you're basically hugging the wall of the outer walls of Zion National yeah. Park. So you're going in and out of the park a little bit. And then there, Mesa, where they've been doing this for all these years, is literally right there, um, you know, a shelf outside the walls of Zion. So it's incredible. And it's a place that you and I would love to go vacation and camp. And I, I've been there. Yeah. It's, I, it's I, I ran an ultra marathon up Smith Mesa, actually. Oh my, you are nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you know exactly how beautiful it is. The, the way the world is closing in is one, you know, I don't have to tell you, but Zion did not always used to be one of the most popular parks. I think it's now the fourth most popular park in the national park system. So there are millions of people coming. Um, the rights worry about things like the park expanding, which it has done over the years and kind of gobbling up more land, which potentially could be the land that they're using. They have about 1,200 acres of private land, but they mostly run their cattle on public land around it, mostly Bureau of Land Management, BLM land. And, and they, they have kind of a, a contiguous patchwork, right, that builds exactly. off their also, private ownership. All sorts of patchwork um, permits all around that land. And they worry every day about what the BLM is going to do in terms of changing um, the rules about conservation versus ranching versus recreation. They worry about all these people that are coming in. Um, Bill, the BLM is all about multi-use. They are, right? and they seem to be trending a little bit more toward recreation more than things like ranching. Mm-hmm. I think the ranchers feel they're the ones that are um, sort of low man on this and feel that it's bending toward more recreation. And, and so the, BL- the, the BLM could just simply remove lands from leasing and say, well, we're not going to allow you to lease this land anymore. Or they could say, you right. can continue to lease it, but we're going to allow less cattle per acre. Right. Right. So either yeah. way, it could kind of reduce their operation. Absolutely. Or they could say um, all that or we're also now going to allow some sort of mining operation there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can sell the permits to, to miners and somehow you have to share it. Um, or recreation, and then suddenly, yeah, people are trying to figure out how you're going to have a couple hundred cows with a bunch of mountain bikers, for example. Um, yeah, you know, this used to be out in the middle of nowhere, and it's no longer out in the middle of nowhere. And what about developers? You talk about them a little bit as well. Yeah, and developers, you know, even since I've written the book, um, you know, the postscript, if there was one for the paperback that's coming out, um, would would tell you that Bill has been approached many times now, including more often since the book came out, um, by developers. and But actually, two, two different groups of people. One is developers who want to buy his land and see it as a recreation tourist place. You know, maybe we can build cabins or hotels or whatever. They want to develop it, or maybe home sites. Um, the other side are con- conservation groups. You know, there's kind of a growing web of conservation groups around the West that are trying to buy open space to protect you know, create bubbles around some of these places like Zion National Park or Yosemite or where I live in the Bay Area, things like Muir Woods um, and the Redwoods. So he's hearing it from both sides. And right now he's if he had his druthers, he would just keep this land forever. The problem, as the book sort of hinges on, is that he's getting surrounded and he at the same time he wants to grow the operation. Well, he's going to have to have a choice probably at some point. Can I grow the operation I can't do both things. I can't keep my land and grow the operation. Yeah. So something's going to have to give. And he's just feeling squeezed in. You write 
I think this might be a quote from him. He's, it is. Um, he says, I enjoy talking about kind of, you know, he understands why people want to recreate there and why they want to build vacation homes and cabins. He says, mm-hmm. I enjoy it too, the beauty and everything else. Um, but beauty don't pay bills. Yeah. Um, it didn't seem right that a family that had been doing the same thing for generations might have to move to do it for the eighth. You don't just dust off 150 years like a day's worth of dirt. That's your your words there. Right. Um, does he... So he understands why people like the place. Um, he, I'm, I'm yep. assuming he feels that people don't understand why they're so um, stuck <laughs> on it. Because, I mean, cause, I mean, you know, aesthetic beauty is great and all, but that's his family's relationship to the land is fundamentally different than us as tourists. You know, we go in and we maybe have really profound experiences with the beauty of nature. And, yep. and you know, we, we, we connect with the, the divine or whatever it is that we like to go and experience those places for. But... These ranchers experience it differently, kind of the same way that native peoples experience their homelands differently than than we do. Yeah, I think there is a parallel there. You know, every time I go there, I'm the one who's wandering around with my head up, taking <laughs> it all in. You know, um, everything from the sights. You know, the, when you get the afternoon sun on the walls of Zion, and they're just glowing, I'm the one looking, and I look around, and nobody else is really looking, like they've seen it all before. It's um, just background now. It's just background now. And I suppose that would happen to any of us in our own homes or our own neighborhoods, our own towns, whatever. Um, you know, the the unusual becomes normal, especially after 150 years. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they, he totally appreciates, completely appreciates how beautiful it is. And I think that's part of the reason why he's, you know, loath to give it up um, too easily. But he also realizes his main goal here is to set up future generations of his own family and he can't let his heart get too much in the way of his head if he can find a better option somewhere else if he can take the money that somebody wants to give him for smith mesa and it'll set up the next generation for him he would do that Hmm. Um, i mean they could probably set up the next few generations (laughs) maybe for i assume what they're being offered yeah and, and, and that's kind of what he's trying to figure out because then it becomes so where do i go that all my grown kids and their families want to go they're already starting to plant roots where they are in milford and beaver um and where makes sense to have a cattle operation you know um that i can have a winter range and a summer range there are a lot of uh, variables in this that he's really, really wrestling with. And nostalgia, I think, and rood- rootedness is kind of at the heart of it. It's kind of the wild card to the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, with some of the recent, you know, controversies about bear's ears and some, just some of these kind of ongoing, you know, not just in southern Utah, but other places as well, there's a lot of industries and families in the West who I think are facing these very same, very same questions. Or, you know, consider some of the people who, you know, have had family homesteads and lands, you know, outside of some of these new kind of growing resort areas like Moab or Jackson Hole mm-hmm. or Aspen, you know, and, and as just regular locals, they're, they're getting priced out of, of their right. homeland. And at some point, each, you know, a generation finally calls it quits in a way. Um, right. You quote Bill's wife, Evelyn, saying, he who remains flexible will never be bent out of shape. <laughs> She has a lot of truisms like that. <laughs> Does that weigh on Bill's mind and this idea that he may have to sacrifice one thing in order to preserve the rest? Yes, it weighs heavily on his mind. Um, you know, it, he would much prefer not to have to deal with this. If he had his druthers, he'd be able to spread out where he is, 
pick up more permits to um, build a herd for his for his sons and for his grandkids and then sort of ride off to the sunset and let them take it over. And the family continues for the eighth or ninth or tenth generation there. Um, but he realizes the reality is if they are indeed interested in growing the herd and keeping this kind of a family business, it's probably not going to be here. And I think pulling that plug is is the trickiest thing for him. And, and, and both from a, a heart standpoint and a head standpoint, you know, he doesn't know when's the best time to take a deal, you know, yeah. how much is the right price. And if he does it now, will he regret it two years from now or will his kids curse him 20 years from now for yeah. having done it then? So I think he's kind of in this weird limbo spot um, and he's trying to out now to kind of figure out, can I actually have the best of both worlds? Could we hang on to this as kind of a family spot and grow the herd somewhere else? And part of that comes back to how much money are the boys earning? Do we have enough money? We could actually do both things. And that's weighing on him as well. But you do note that, I mean, throughout his life, throughout Bill's life, he um, he had other jobs. He he was a waterman yep. working the canals. He had a, a concrete business for a while. So yep. he does have a personal history of kind of mixing the ranching with other things. He um, does. That are in no way related to ranching. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to, people to think that this is an, a ranching operation that has been up and running since, you know, 1862. And um, it's it's land that they have, that, that family has run cattle on, um, basically as homesteaders, going back that far. And Bill, as a young man, um, worked all those jobs and then raised a family and to raise a family and, and keep food on the table he had a small herd of cows, um, had some sheep. I was actually doing some farming out there on Smith Mesa when he got that land from his dad. And but was mostly um, working as a waterman down in Hurricane, um, working the canals and the and divvying up water for all the area farmers down there. And that was his real job. And then he started a concrete business. And so he is very much a handyman. Um, but now all of his boys have fallen into rodeo and they love the idea of. Um, you know, trying to earn a living on horseback. And they're, they're kind of in this weird in-between stage, too, because most of these boys are now raising young families themselves. They're in the rodeo. Many of them are still in their prime. And for them to sort of stop it all and say, Dad, we're going to come help you build this, they're not exactly sure what they want 20 years from now. It's hard for them to look that far out. So Bill's sort of waiting for them to kind of get in line and to tell him, yes, Dad, please keep doing this because we want to take it over someday. We want ranching to be the thing we do. Right. Yeah. Please keep building the herd because, we, you know, Dad, trust us. We will take it over someday. Well, a couple of them have said yes, but a couple of them are still kind of young enough to go like, Dad, I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe I'll be getting the concrete if this doesn't work out. You know, yeah. they all have they all have skills themselves. They all are very self-made kind of folks where Alex, for example, rides the rodeo circuit. And then he also works some of the concrete stuff that his dad used to do. He took all of his dad's old concrete equipment and has kind of resurrected that business. Um, those guys work on ranches on the side. They'll do whatever they can for an extra buck if it, you know, to go help somebody else build something. Um, hmm. Some so, of that's not on horseback, though. Right? Not all of it's on horseback, but their preferred preferred yeah. mode of making a living is, is certainly on horseback. Cody, for example, the oldest boy, who is two-time world champion, has basically now retired. He's trying to raise and train um, cattle dogs. And he's probably the one that will take over his dad's operation, kind of already has to some extent. But he has five kids of his own that he's trying to raise as well, including two that are now 
champion cowboy yeah, himself. Yeah. Um, so he's got his hands full, um, wants to build his own house, wants to help his dad. And they're all kind of waiting, you know, when when's the time to sort of say, Dad, we'll take over now because Bill yeah. still likes to do it. And so they're all kind of feeling each other out a little bit. Um, and I think Bill just kind of worries, like, what am I leaving behind? I, you know, I think he thinks when I go, whenever that day comes, I want to make sure I've done everything possible for my kids. And if that means we can all share and my future generations can share Smith Mesa, then that's the biggest bonus in the world. You talked about how uh, early in his life, I think one of his first jobs was down in the Grand Canyon, uh, running mules up and down, you know, the South Kaibab Trail, yep. the Grand Canyon. And I was struck that, you know, in a, a couple of generations ago, there seemed to be more of a connection between, um, you know, being a horseman and the very marketable skills that that gave you um, in some of the recreation tourist industries that are now, you know, kind of crowding in around Smith Mesa. But now the tourist industry that's coming in around Smith Mesa, you know, with Zion National Park and other things doesn't seem to be as closely linked to or doesn't seem to be an industry in which they can employ their horseman skills like maybe he could running mules in the Grand Canyon. I guess they still right. run mules in the Grand Canyon, but you know, we're we're car campers and we drive in air-conditioned cars <laughs> to Zion and we we jump on the shuttles and we hike around a bit. And there are a couple, you know, horseback tours and so forth, but you go back 50, 75 years, uh Horses are much more present in the national no, parks. No doubt. And I think they're banned in almost in most national parks these days, um, besides Grand Canyon. You know, for example, I know Yosemite doesn't have horses. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you say that because you're right. That area around Smith Mesa, you know, there's always cattle around there and all these patches for for cattle ranching. Um, so there are people working on horses. But the people who come to recreate there, for the most part, are driving in and camping they're doing things like ultra marathons. Yeah. They're doing uh, mountain biking. Those crazy mountain, that Red Bull uh, Rampage. Uh, the Red Bull Rampage, which is right near where he is. Is that over uh, on Gooseberry Mesa? Exactly. Okay, yep. yeah. um, so all those kinds of things are sort of, you know, that's that's the 21st century kind of recreation as opposed to 50 years ago when families might go and camp in this giant tent and then go ride horses and have somebody show them around on, on, on the trail. So our, our interests have changed. What's interesting about that, though, is that Bill, he did used to run mules down the Grand Canyon, and then he would do it for tourists for a while as um, part of the company that had that had that license for the Grand Canyon. And he kind of enjoyed it, but he didn't, didn't do it then for 50 years. And now that he's got this land and he's trying to figure out how to keep the land, he has started giving trail rides again at Smith Mesa. And so you can go online now and find him, and he is spending many of his days now giving oh. tourists trail rides through Smith Mesa on the edges of Zion National Park. So in some ways, he's kind of gone back to the future a little bit, <laughs> um, and I think he's really, really enjoying it. I think he kind of forgot how much fun it was 50 years ago in the Grand Canyon. Yeah, you I mean you mentioned this in the epilogue of some of these various mm -hmm. things that he's thinking about, and I'm assuming that in the paperback, then there'll be a postscript kind of with this this update because of that. I think. As the book reads now, he's thinking about trail rides. Mm -hmm. I don't think he'd started doing it yet. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that everything that was hinted at in the um, epilogue of the book has come true. And, the, wow. the, and they still own the land. So nothing major has changed. Yeah. Um, but, so, what are, yeah. so what are some of these things? That, I mean, so in this epilogue, you mentioned yeah. that he's 
kind of thinking about, I mean, kind of this glamping thing where people set up these big fancy tents that people can come and stay in. Exactly. Um, He's doing that. He, horse um, rides. Um, has he started, you mentioned that he was thinking about maybe starting kind of a small kind of tourist rodeo where tourists could come and see a small rodeo operation. Yeah, he has thought about that. Um, basically taking that idea from um, some folks outside of Bryce. He has thought about that, has not moved on that. Um, but he has a, a woman came and and pitched him the idea of the glamping right about the time that I finished the book. And so she did that for a year or two. And then things didn't work out well, I think, business wise between them. And he's now doing that himself. So you can um, you can actually go online and I forget the exact website, but it's, you know, Zion Wright Ranch or something, some sort of combination of uh-huh. Zion Wright and Ranch. And you can find that you can rent campsites from them. And it is glamping. There's a pad with and a tent and cots. And your door flaps open up to that wall of um, Zion National Park that I'm talking to. And Bill, for whatever price, will um, put you on his horses and and show you all around down into the wash. And um, they've built a little bit of an operation just kind of on the side. And I think it's it's if nothing else, it's a place marker to keep that land until he figures this all out. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it's also the um, the first step toward actually building a, a, a real operation, which might include that kind of rodeo where po- folks from around Zion will come on Friday night and do a chuck wagon and, yeah. and watch the right boys and all their friends jump on the back of horses and bulls. And maybe that's the key then that allows them, they keep the land, maybe they're not ranching it, that land as much, but they get to keep that land. And maybe their ma- their ranching operation is elsewhere, but they maybe get the best of both worlds then. Uh, yeah, I think that's the ultimate hope, which didn't really occur to him until recently when all the boys started doing really well in rodeo. And so yeah. they, you know, their, their salaries went from, um, you know, being a ranch hand or whatever, or working cement to suddenly you're not, you're, you're winning hundred thousand dollars in Las Vegas in December. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've seen that. Yeah. Outside of Bryce, um, there's also like the Zion Ponderosa ranch on the other, mm-hmm. other side of Zion, yep. which has a bunch of large cabins. And I think maybe they do some trail rides there as well. Yeah. I know I went to one up, um, in Island park, um, Idaho up out of yeah. West Yellowstone, we were up there once, and somehow the family got convinced. We went to – it was like a little amateur rodeo. I think kids go there like on summer camp, and yeah. they learn how to rodeo, and then every week they put on – or every few nights they put on a rodeo for tourists, and they cook you, you know, a big, you know, obscenely large steak. and um, <laughs> right. Put it on big metal plates. Yeah, yeah, and it was uh, – you know, it, it seemed great. Um, my wife had recently bought me this T-shirt that it looked like a cowboy shirt, <laughs> like, but it was just screen printed on like pearly snaps and designs. <laughs> and so I wore that and then yeah. immediately regretted it because some people laughed and then said, wait, is he making fun of us by wearing this shirt? And oh, right. uh, I don't think it went over very well. But... Yeah, there, there's a there's a short distance between uh, irony and, and mocking, I guess. I don't yeah, know. I wasn't trying to mock them. I thought it was pretty Of course. Great, but... Yeah. Well, one other um, thing that I wanted to uh, ask about, which you know, when people hear ranchers, they hear Southern Utah. Um, I think they're going to think about uh, Clive and Bundy and some of mm-hmm. those ongoing things, which you, you talk about a little bit in the book. Yeah. Um, these ongoing controversies, you know, the public lands movement, transferring federal public lands to state control, all the, all these various things. And you lay Bill out as being sympathetic to the Bundys, but not, mm-hmm. but staying largely aloof of those ongoing Yes, Thanks. I think that's that's exactly right. He, um, you know, he, as I was reporting the book, is when the the Bundy standoff was occurring pretty early in reporting in the book, 
and the rights were not the kind of folks that were taking part in that. Like knew of it. Um, Bill, I think, has met Clive and Bundy a couple of times. Um, you know, it's, Clive and Bundy is, I forget now, 50 or 60 miles down the Virgin River from where, where Bill is. Yeah. Um, so they're area ranchers. So he knew about him and knew a little bit, little bit about the family. I think he's he's empathetic or sympathetic towards some of that cause. But Bill is very apolitical. Um, he's certainly not the one to ever like lead any sort of rebellion. Um, and you raise an interesting point because I think this gets confused or conflated a lot, especially in the more recent talk about land use in Utah, um, bears ears, and should it be in local control or federal control or you know how do we divvy up this land? And Bill is very nuanced when he talks about this. You know, he is like, be careful what you wish for, because as much as he complains about the BLM and the Forest Service and the permits that he has and the uncertainty that he has when it comes time to renew these permits in terms of how many cattle he can run or if he can even run cattle at all and so on. The flip side of that is trying to get it back into local control. And suddenly then now he's working with the federal government, you know, the BLM and the Forest Service, plus maybe some sort of county governments, plus maybe some sort of town governments, which he's doing Chamber a little of bit commerce, of or Chamber of Commerce and some private owners. And suddenly for ranchers like Bill, and there's a million of them who have a patchwork of permits, you've just now complicated the whole thing. You know, I think it's easier for him to have basically two landlords, the BLM, and the Forest Service. And if you start throwing in more entities, that actually just kind of makes their life more difficult. Interesting. I mean, I've, I've spoken with other ranchers about this. Um, you know, I'm here at the the Charles Red Center for Western Studies mm-hmm. at BYU, and the Red family is a ranching family, you know, from Southeast yeah. Utah. And I've gone to their bull sale before down in mm-hmm. Colorado. And I mean, I've, and I've talked to other ranchers as well, and they're all sympathetic to uh, Bundy's frustrations with the BLM and the Forest Service. I think that's a, a uni- yeah. universal, like everyone loves to complain about the BLM and they have very right. valid reasons to complain about federal policies. But most of the ones I spoke to also were really rubbed the wrong way by Bundy not paying his grazing fees. They say, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we don't like the BLM either. And we get frustrated when they change the rules on us and so forth, but we pay our fees. Right. Yeah. Bill, Bill is, is in that vein as well. He's a rule follower. Mm-hmm. Um, I could never see him just out of protest stopping to doing something. So do you think Bill is is representative? Some and maybe this is a false dichotomy, but if you have Clive and Bundy and you have Bill, is Bill more representative of kind of that broader ranching and even rodeo world that um, you walked around in for a few years? Yes, I think so. Um, what I think Bill represents is all the uh, all the people who kind of live sort of quiet, kind of noble, hardworking, dust covered lives in sort of quiet anonymity and really want nothing more than to keep their head down and just do solid work that they think is noble and serves a broader purpose and feeds their family. Um, so this notion of, of calling attention to yourself and protesting in a big way is it, just not something that I could imagine the rights doing. Mm-hmm. You know, they might complain about things under their breath. They, they complain about things sitting around the campfire, but they're not the type. Um, to raise a big stink. Yeah. They will they will quietly go about their work and and they how they've survived 150 years and how they survive in rodeo and how they survive in ranching is by just sort of navigating with hard work all the little hurdles that are thrown up around them. And if those hurdles are BLM things, um, if the hurdle is a drought this year, if the hurdle is a fence has 
been knocked down by ATVs and now yeah. a bunch of cows are out. They just deal with it. They just literally put their heads down and just deal with it. And that's how they see, I think, the broader world as well. Well, I wonder how much of the dysfunction, you know, communication between some of these opposing groups of, you know, perhaps ranchers or conservation groups or others, say, you know, are involved in the Bears Ears debate mm-hmm. and so forth, um, that uh, they largely seem to talk past one another. They don't really engage mm-hmm. because I, I, I feel like that each group views each other as as the extreme, you know, that they, yeah. you know, people think, oh, they're all they're all a bunch of Clive and Bundys where um, many of them are just hardworking people trying to keep their head down who do have valid concerns and valid complaints. But people conflate those complaints or grumblings with uh, things much more to the to the extreme. I, I agree. I think you've just um defined Utah and the West <laughs> and Washington politics all in yeah. one sentence there. Yeah, people really struggle to um, to find compromise and to find, I guess, empathy for why people on the other side feel so passionately the way they do. Yeah. Um, and I think we see that in, in micro ways across the West and, you know, ranchers butting up against conservationists, for example. We all sort of want to do what's best for the land. And there has to be some sort of give and take there, um, but to to throw up big walls and fight over it is is not doing a lot of good for anybody. Yeah, I don't remember the name of the group, but uh, I knew a couple of professors here at BYU who got invited to go somewhere down to southern Utah on this camping trip, and it was some group, and they brought in a bunch of environmentalists and conservation groups and scientists and these you know environmental humanities professors and people, hmm. um, and a bunch of local ranchers. And um, people living down in some of these areas, and they hosted and paid for everyone to come to this big camp out <laughs> and literally had them sit around the campfire and talk with the idea being that, you know, if if we would just get these opposing groups to sit down and talk with one another, right, you know, literally around a campfire or otherwise, uh, they would find out they have a lot more in common. And there's and there's a lot of collaborative work that can be done, even when they disagree. Right. Um, right. I think that's healthy. I think yeah. it's healthy. Um, well, do you have any other anything else you can uh, tell us about about the upcoming paperback and the postscript? Well, is there anything sadly, else up- updated <laughs> since since the book came out? Um, sadly, I, we didn't really write a postscript, and okay. there was some discussion about it because we thought, well, some things have changed the last couple of years. I mean, the book just came out in hardback a year ago, so it's not like monumental changes. Um, but we decided not to do a postscript, partly because the way the book ends, for anybody who picks it up and makes it to the end, we'll see we kind of left it all hanging, and it's still kind of hanging. Um, and I and I think the the writer in me likes the way that it ends, um, sort of in this ethereal, like we don't know what's going to happen kind of way. Yeah. And so I didn't feel like trying to tie up any loose ends made sense because these ends are never really going to be tied up. This yeah. is going to go on to the next generation. So uh, we didn't write a postscript, but I can tell any listeners who have made it this far um, that, yeah, Cody, for example, has basically retired from, from rodeo. Um, but his three oldest sons, he has four sons, but his three oldest now are like 23, 21, and 19, and they are all professional rodeo cowboys. They will all make it to Las Vegas this December. Um, and the third one is doing it maybe in both saddle bronc and bull riding. Wow. A lot of the book talks about how the family 
is they're all Saddlebog riders, and Stetson is um, deciding he is going to break away from the pack and try to make a name for himself in bull riding, and he has done extremely well. Wow. Um, and so Cody is kind of now the grand old day, you know, the grand old guy. He was convinced, I believe it was Rodeo Houston this past winter, like in, in February, to come and um, ride for the first time in months. And he did in front of a packed house, packed arena, and he finished second wow. in one of the biggest rodeos of the year behind his son. So, um, <laughs> it's the quite the dynasty. Still riding strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They are still riding strong. That's great. Well, I do love, I wanted to note that, you know, the way you end this, you have this closing scene of Bill on Smith Mesa kind of pondering the future. And then the, the line you end with is, you know, he's there and you say he's, you know, waiting for the world to close in. A little bit ominous. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad to hear that in the meantime, you know, some of those ideas he was chewing on um, maybe, maybe might work out for him. That's that's exciting to hear. Yeah, I feel, I mean, uh, I'm very optimistic about the future of the rights just because of their work ethic and, you know, all the traits that I absolutely adore about them. But also I think that they, they'll be fine. And then they may get squeezed out of Smith Mesa. They won't be the only family that has to deal with this kind of thing and is dealing with this kind of thing. But they have all those kind of traits that will, including love of family, that will see them through. Well, I think a lot of Westerners will say, well, that's because they're they're good Westerners. Those are traits of you know the Western U.S. <laughs> yeah, so there's something to be said for that. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk with us, John. I really appreciate it's it. Really been a pleasure, Brendan. Thank you so much for the interest. All right, take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll include a link in the episode description. Besides subscribing to the podcast, you can receive regular updates about upcoming episodes by following on Facebook or Twitter. My name is Brennan Rensink, and I serve here as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, uh, and pretty much everything else. So if you have any praise or critiques, you should probably just send them my way. I'm Associate Director of the Red Center and an Associate Professor of History here at Brigham Young University. Feel free to contact me if you have any questions about the podcast, the Red Center, our live-streamed lectures and events, funding opportunities, or anything else. If you have books you think I should consider for an episode, please send them my way. One last plug, I'm also the Project Manager and General Editor of a great digital public history project hosted here at the Red Center called Intermountain Histories. You can check it out by visiting www.intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. There you can read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. In any case, thanks again for listening to the episode. We'll see you next month.